Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly sunny skies on this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Well, two days after Election Tuesday and still no results. We're still counting. It's come down to a handful of states, and that includes right here in Georgia. Georgia is getting a lot of attention, deservedly so, tonight. Nevada is leaning Biden's way. Democrats are optimistic about Pennsylvania and Georgia. Georgia also, we rate it as a toss-up. Right now, the vote count, Donald Trump, 2.3 million. Joe Biden, 2.2 million. So it's really close. close. Yeah, it's really close. Just love being in the news, don't you? We'll have live coverage and more analysis this hour. So get ready, folks, because there's a lot. But first, even with all of this election news taking place, we know the big news still is the coronavirus pandemic. It does continue. So for the latest, we always get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And here's what we know. Newly reported infections are on the rise. These new COVID-19 cases are up more than 20 percent in the last two weeks. So as of right now, 366,452 COVID-19 cases in total now have been confirmed here in Georgia. 32,042 have been hospitalized, and of those, 6,031 are ICU admissions. And we should report the number of deaths has reached 8,072 since March. We always get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, let's get back to some other numbers, and that is the margin between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Let's call it razor thin. Georgia election officials are asking for, was there a song called Patience from some 80s group? I don't know, was it Guns N' Roses? I don't know, but it was called Patience. There's only so many people who are involved in these processes in the 159 counties in this state. Uh, I know there's been questions about numbers that move around. I've heard 25,000, 50,000, 60,000. The reality is it's about 60,000 votes that are out right now. And we're working with the counties to make sure that they have properly put their stuff into their system and uploaded. As like many of y'all during this election cycle, they're tired. Sometimes they're going to forget to press the upload button. So we recently this morning done an extra email and follow-up phone calls through our liaisons and the elections office to make sure they have uploaded everything. That was Gabriel Sterling, the state's voting implementation manager, at a press conference earlier today with the Secretary of State's office. Now, Sterling went on to say he is, quote, prayerful that counting will be done today, close quote. And the other related news, a Chatham Superior Court judge is denying a petition from the Georgia Republican Party and President Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Now, the suit alleged the county improperly handled and possibly included absentee ballots in their count after receiving said ballots after the state deadline, which is in violation of Georgia law. Now, after both sides presented their arguments, Chatham County Superior Court Judge James Bass took all of four seconds with his decision. After listening to the evidence of denying the request, dismissing the petition. There you go. Now, as we mentioned, there's a lot happening in Georgia, and Emil Moffitt and Emma Hurd have been all over the place, but let's join Emil Moffitt. He's been following the voting process, the counting process in the state for a while now, and he joins me now to give some additional context to what's context to what's happening. Emil, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you, Rose? Are you are you staying hydrated, Emil? I am, yes. Staying hydrated, staying caffeinated, and I believe it was Guns N' Roses that you were referring to. With so was I, was I right, Guns N' Roses, or was it Poison? I, uh, I don't you know. Were, yeah. you, know, you, know, <laughs> you, know I, I, you know, I know my heavy metal, whatever you want to call it, glam rock, but anyway. <laughs> Emil, two days after the election and we're still counting votes, um, many people did expect there would be a delay in results, but two days? 
yeah, this was this was actually the the anticipated timeline. We had heard some some speculation uh, toward the part last part of last week that they may be able to get these votes counted um, by Wednesday morning or sometime on Wednesday. And now it's become late Wednesday night and now sometime Thursday. Um, but I, I think just the, the sheer volume of absentee ballots um, ha has led to this uh, delay, if you want to call it, um, from what we're used to the last several election cycles. But it is just a very time intensive process. And we got to remember that um, this actually started two weeks before counties could start processing these mm -hmm. absentee ballots without adding them up, processing them. So so they've been they've been working for a long time to get this done. So I think with the over a million absentee ballots, I think they've done uh, just about as good a job as they could have. And let's provide some clarity for our listeners, Emil, because we're talking about which particular votes are, are ballots, whether these are absentee ballots or these provisional, these military, is it a whole lot? What are we looking at? Um, it's kind of a mix of all those, but for the most part, it is absentee ballots that were delivered by seven o'clock on election night, which is the standard, it's the rule, um, the deadline to get those ballots back to counties, either by Dropbox or through the mail. Um, so those are the ones that be counted. There are some among those, there's some provisional ballots and those absentee ballots, um, excuse me, the, the, the overseas military ballots. Mm -hmm. The overseas military ballots are the only one that you can kind of set aside and have a little distinction from because those have to be postmarked by election day. They don't necessarily have to arrive. So overseas uh, military ballots can still arrive uh, even after election day, but those are the only ones. None other will count if they arrive after election day. Is there any other county other than Fulton County that is still counting uh, votes here? Yeah, there are actually several other counties that mm -hmm. are doing it. Um, Fulton, of course, gets the most attention because it's the largest county. And as of this morning, they had 11,000. That's kind of uh, dripped down a little bit as they've gone through the process. Um, but the, just the sheer number uh, in Fulton County. But there are also you know, 17,000 uh, outstanding as of this morning in Chatham County. There were 7,000 in Clayton County, 7,000 in Cobb. So mm. there are still significant numbers, significant numbers across uh, the state of Georgia. It's not just uh, not just Fulton County, but uh, that certainly has gotten the, the lion's share of the attention because it's really affecting uh, you know the closeness of the presidential race. We heard Gabriel Sterling say, quote, he was prayerful that all of the county could be completed today. Is that possible? Is that likely? Yeah, what they're counting on is, and I think what uh, Gabe Sterling was talking about, was trying to get the majority of them counted today to a point where you could start to possibly see some decisions made from the networks about uh, the presidential race, get it to a point where they can make a call. And I think that is entirely possible by the end of the day today. Um, one thing he said that there was, a, you know, with those 17,000 outstanding ballots in, in Chatham County, that there had been some kind of uh, administrative uh, roadblocks to work through because their board of elections and their uh, elections department were kind of sued to two different departments there in Chatham County. So that was kind of slowing things down, but he expected them to really get to get things going today and be able to, to work their way through a lot of those 17,000. And then Fulton continues just working literally around the clock mm -hmm. to, to cut down their backload. Well, and we should note that folks should understand everyone is working around the clock. What was the sense that you got from at least with Fulton County in terms of uh, we've always had issues with Fulton County in the past, but nothing like this. But what is the sense you get that they feel like that they're taking their time, they're doing the right thing, they're making sure that all ballots that should be counted will be counted? You know, we know about the lawsuit in Chatham. Kind of surprised there hasn't been a lawsuit in Fulton County yet, but, you know, there's always tomorrow. <laughs> there is always tomorrow, and we, we are expecting that there could be further legal action as, as things play out. Uh, but in Fulton, if you look back to the summer, um, they had some real issues in June, even with, we saw the long lines, you remember, but there were also issues with processing absentee ballot applications and then the absentee ballots themselves. They really worked hard throughout the summer to iron out the process to make sure that people who got there requested an absentee ballot got them and that they were able to count them in a timely manner. And so Fulton kind of put in a plan to go step-by-step step to make sure that they could handle this onslaught. They have some 142,000 absentee ballots to cast, to count. And, and so they've really gone to, to great lengths to try to put in a systematic way that they can handle all of those ballots and get them 
uh, counted in a timely manner, especially with the volume they've had. So I think they're pleased with the way they've done it. Um, they set up in State Farm Arena where they have this big wide open space where they can kind of social distance mm-hmm. and get it all processed. And uh, they are, if you see the pictures from uh, from from that room, they are systematic, they're working hard, and they're trying to get this uh, this count completed. And they're doing it while folks like you and other journalists are in a way, Emil. Well, you weren't in a, in a way, but I'm just saying, come you on, know, fellow journalists, get out the way. Let them do their job. We won't need to you see know, y'all. It's, it's funny, Rose, that they, you know, you see those pictures on TV and they even have live shots sometimes. And it seems like the journalists are right there, but they're actually kind of stationed back. The, the TV cameras are having to really strain their their uh, their zoom lenses to try to get those close-up shots because you're actually not uh, – not too close. So, but that's a good thing this this era. Yeah. (laughs) WABE reporter Emil Moffitt, as always, thank you for taking the time and keeping our listeners up to date with all this information. Thank you, Emil. Stay safe. Yeah. My pleasure, Rose. Thank you. And there's more Closer Look after this. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. That's not Guns N' Roses. Now I have Guns N' Roses in my head, Kevin Rinker, our engineer today. I was hoping you was going to play some Guns N' Roses because, I don't know, it seemed to be the band of the day. Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. If I had a daily blog, today's entry would be titled Uncounted Ballots, Lawsuits, and More. A nation waits for the 2020 presidential election results. Why? Well, it's not clear because states like Georgia are still counting votes. And meanwhile, yes, there is a lawsuit that's already been filed by the Trump campaign and the Georgia Republican Party, including here in Georgia. Now, this latest lawsuit stemmed from a claim by a Republican poll observer in Chatham County who stated he witnessed 53 late absentee ballots added to a stack of on-time ballots. And a press release from the Trump campaign says he won't allow Democratic election officials to, quote, steal the election, close quote. But under oath, there was no real evidence that was presented that concluded ballots were to be counted that were received late. Now, earlier today, as mentioned, Judge James Bass, Jr. out of Chatham County, issued a very, very, very brief ruling regarding this lawsuit. Here's what he said. After listing evidence of denying the request, dismissing the petition. The only thing I add, he said, was thank you, gentlemen. Meanwhile, it does appear Georgia Senate races will decide control of the U.S. Senate. Who knew all of this was coming? So let's bring in, let's welcome back to the program, Julianne Thompson, president of the Atlanta-based MSN Strategies and longtime political analyst, as well as Atlanta-based political strategist himself, Fred Hicks. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Let's begin here. Julianne, your overall view as it's day two of counting. What do you make of this? Unprecedented. I was actually, um, as as you were talking, I, I have in the background on mute the uh, press conference that's going on in Nevada right now, mm-hmm. listening to watching Joe Gloria, the uh, Nevada voter registrar, talk about the, the race in Nevada, which right now there is a difference of 11,438 votes mm-hmm. in favor of Joe Biden. And then here in Georgia, um, there's less than 14,000 votes um, in favor of President Trump. So this election is so razor thin close. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, I've just never seen anything like it before. Yeah, Fred, what do you make of this? You know, uh, back in 2000, I was a volunteer on the Gore campaign in Tennessee national headquarters. And I worked for Dell and Dell was headquartered in Austin, Round Rock, Texas, where the Bush campaign was headquartered. And so this is starting to remind me a lot of my much younger days where that night 
and the next couple of days we watched it kind of go back and forth back and forth and ultimately landed on 537 votes out of florida and so looking at this and as julianne mentioned this razor thin margin that's impacting not just that that presidential race but whether or not David Perdue is going to end up in a, in a runoff. He keeps flip-flopping mm-hmm. right now. Uh, he's over 50%, under 50%. And then we're also looking at two statewide PSC, Public Service Commission races, mm-hmm. that are impacted mm-hmm. by it. And then even at the state legislative level, when we were on yesterday, the, uh, some of the races were in one, in one direction, and they've now flipped, especially in Fulton County, in a different direction. So, for example, Representative Silcox was ahead yesterday morning, and now she's behind. Um, and so this is this is uh, trickle-down uh, politics and electoral uh, vote counting, and it's impacting a lot of additional races. Well, let's talk about election law for a moment. Um, you, we've heard this argument before. Oh, get rid of the electoral college. Just go with the popular vote. What's with this 50 percent or more? Some people say, look, if you have a majority, that should be it. What do you make of that, Fred? Do we need to start looking at the election laws as a state by state? Should it be something universal? You know, I, I, I'm okay with the state-by-state state, uh, model, and so I'm popularly positioned within Democratic circles, but I'm, I'm actually, I understand the history of the Electoral College, but um, I actually don't have as much of an issue with it as other people do. Um, I think that the, the of course, is built on this whole idea of reapportionment, redistricting, and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's how, and how seats are allocated. But I say that to say this now, one of the things I just learned this year, I always assumed that if there's an electoral college tie, that it would go to the vote of the House. But apparently, the law is that it actually goes to a vote of the state House chambers, in which case uh, Republicans have more state House chambers than Democrats do, even though there are more Democrats in Congress than there are Republicans. And so under that scenario, you'd have to imagine that if there's a 269-269 tie, mm-hmm. that Trump will retain the presidency. And that that's an interesting quirk. Julianne, what about you? Is it time to start looking at the Electoral College? Is it time to start looking at different laws regarding, you know, all these stipulations that how, not only if you win, but how you have to win? Well, first of all, I, I absolutely um, agree with Fred that this is not, it's not a good idea to change, <clears throat> excuse me, um, to change the Electoral College. I am not a fan of that. I believe that our founding fathers and their wisdom had put this together for a variety of reasons because you don't give all of the power to the densely populated metropolitan areas of the country and then forget about, you know, the plains of Iowa or the mountains of Montana or the coasts of Florida. I mean, every part of America counts, and that's the reason why we have an electoral college and not just the popular vote. With regard to changing things, um, you know, I'm I've never been in favor of too many national regulations. However, I do wonder if there does need to be some sort of uniform national standard as to how elections are conducted and how votes are counted. Now, we've had that conversation a time or two on this program since you bring it up. What what do you think? What would be if Julianne Thompson, if they said whatever she says, this is what we're going to do, what would it be? You know, I really can't say at this point in time, what we have to do is we have to get through this election. We have to study this election in detail and um, and past elections as well and how things happen um, and do a lot of a lot of debriefing in different states to see what worked and what did not work and then come to some sort of agreement after that. I don't have the answer to that question. In Oregon, and we did a we did a segment on this program in Oregon, I believe, is the only state that. In every election, I mean, if there's an election for the the, the county coroner, it's all done by mail. Would you be in favor of Georgia, even a state like Georgia, doing that, or it wouldn't work in a state like Georgia? Are you asking me? Mm -hmm. I would never be in favor of of a a national election uh, uh, just by mail. No, absolutely. Why? Because I think it's ripe for voter fraud. Mm -hmm. I absolutely do. Um, I think that there has to be a lot of securities in place when it comes to to absentee ballots. I mean, I even think that there could be some issues there, but um, but just a, a mass voter ballot mail out, I would never be in favor of. Fred, what about you? Yeah, I differ with her on that one. So even though I don't have a problem with the EC Electoral College as is, uh, I'm kind of a radical in some of those respects, right? And uh, that's probably come back and be used against me one day for using that word, but. 
I'm okay with the national election. I'm also okay with ranked choice voting. Um, and that's something like uh, that I think we could we could we could really use. Now there are different versions of it. Like uh, one of the states, you have to get uh, if no one gets over fifty percent, then you default. I think it's Maine to rank choice voting. Mm-hmm. But I, I like the idea of rank choice voting. I like the idea of how California does it with jungle primaries, and the top two vote getters are out there. Like we're seeing in the special election right now with uh, uh, for the Leffler seat. So, but a national to me, a national. Um, I, I personally would love to see a national primary day. And a national election day. So the first Tuesday of the year is a national election day. I mean, first Tuesday in November. I think we should have a national primary day because I think that also levels the playing field. You don't get the idea of momentum and things like that, because, and which might mean that someone like Joe Biden is not the nominee this year, right? Because it took South Carolina for his campaign to turn around. But um, I, I like something different than than what we would have. But again. Um, this is where we are and these are the rules of the game and until that changes which i don't see happening just have to master the rules well and for those that may not understand i mean ranked choice voting is like it 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 sounds listen you get to pick your choices in order preference one two three those are my folks that's pretty much it and you would be in favor of that julian what do you you think about ranked ranking uh making choices that way yeah, I, I'm not a fan of ranked choice voting. I'm certainly not a fan of, of the jungle primary I, that, that we just have, that we're going through right now. I think it's caused a lot of issues and in many different ways. Um, but I'm not completely against parties choosing their nominee mm-hmm. versus traditional mm. primary um, and then taking the nominee to the general electorate. You know, I, I I'm, I don't know. I, there's just there's so many issues yeah. going on right now, and there's so much going through everyone's mind. I really think before we make any sort of decisions like this, or or really get into these these sort of detailed discussions, we really need to see what actually happened and what the Republicans and or what the Democrats thought went wrong or what was done correctly this election cycle. Fred, your response to what Julianne just said. Oh, Julianne, you got to be willing to experiment a little bit more. You know, you can't be such a traditionalist. No, but uh, that being said, there's definitely going to be an autopsy um, uh, on this election because the Democrats, even if Biden wins, which I, I do think that Biden's going to get to 270, um, the fact that it looks like we lost a couple of House seats, that's problematic. Um, and then, of course, you know, we get ready, for, we'll get ready for the, uh, wow. Georgia being ground zero, as you mentioned in the opening comments for the uh, for the Senate runoff, where I think, again, you'll probably see what 100, 150 million between hard and soft money spent, because it's about control of the Senate. And Senator McConnell, Leader McConnell mentioned just today that he is he's already trying to regulate who Biden will, will have as in his cabinet and his policies. There won't be any progressives or any radicals out there. And so I think McConnell, as he has done in the past, has gotten a little ahead of himself and he's helping crystallize the importance of both of these seats, if it comes down to two, I mean, we might only have one runoff, but it certainly looks like control of the Senate and thus control of the Biden agenda and its very cabinet is going to come down to Georgia. And that's that's tremendous. Well, I want to get back to that in a moment, but let's talk about these lawsuits. Obviously, the one today that was dismissed. And Julianne, I know you're not speaking for the Trump campaign, but this lawsuit and the others that have been filed, in your mind, are they legitimate or simply a stalling tactic? I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wasn't in Chatham County. I didn't personally witness anything. So I really can't speak to that. Um, I am sure, but I can say this. I don't think that there was any type of lawsuit filed by the Trump campaign that would not have been filed by the Biden campaign should the shoe have been on the other foot. Mm-hmm. Fred? Well, listen, lawsuit or not, we're inside the 1% margin, so there are going to be recounts. Um, and while, whereas recounts tend not to really impact anything here in the uh, metro, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in Chatham, Bibb, Early, um, these, you know, these South Georgia counties. But either way, there are going to be recounts. So I think it is a stalling tactic. And, I, and, and, it's, and President Trump is remarkably inconsistent. He tweets, stop the count. Stop the count. Hey, I want a recount. You know, stop the count. Hey, keep going, keep going over here and going over there. And so it's remarkably inconsistent. But the bottom line and bedrock principle of our democracy is that every vote of whoever's eligible to vote should be counted. 
And so I think in this country, we need to make it easier, not more difficult to count, uh, to, to vote and to have your votes counted. But but as Julianne mentioned, you know, neither of us were there. I don't know what really happened. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there was something that, that happened out there. But either way, is gonna we're going to go into a recount. So whatever results we get today, I think the Secretary of State said they want to have it by midday or mid-afternoon. Whatever results we have today, you're, you're gonna we're going to have another three or four business days because uh, I think Georgia has until the 13th. And it's probably going to take all the way up until that point with the recounts and all of that. So there's, you know, we'll be on a lot more, hopefully. But I, I, I don't think, I think it's fair to dissect, and you two are, are our analysts here, to dissect what is really going on as well. Because Julianne, President Trump made it clear if he didn't win, that meant some some type of nefarious or, quote, stealing of the election, which there is no evidence to support his claims. At what point? Should or does a Republican Party need to come in and say, Mr. President, if it appears that you have lost, let's move on and let's accept the results? Well, what President Trump is saying is not any sort of election anomaly. I mean, that, you know, Stacey Abrams had the same type of of uh, complaints here in Georgia in 2018. Of course, there was. Uh, there have been other presidential elections in the past. I mean, Hillary Clinton still believes that she won the presidential election. So, I mean, this this is not anything that is exclusive to Donald Trump. But those and, claims were made after, not not weeks and sometime b- before the actual election, though. There's a difference. Would you not a- acknowledge that? Well, it, it hasn't been called yet. So... We don't know who won the election as of yet. Listen, as far as I personally am concerned, I believe you got to be patient. You have to wait until all the votes are counted, and then you deal with the situation. Um, and and it's a and it's a patience process. I mean, I don't think that. Of course, I don't speak for the president, mm-hmm. but I don't. Think that the president would deny the fact that he's not the most patient person in the world. So. Um, <laughs> You know, that being said, I, you know, let's, Gabriel Serling said earlier that what was most important was to have a a safe and fair election. And that is worth waiting the extra time that it takes to make sure that every vote is counted and that we get it right and that we know that we've gotten it right. And I agree with that. And I think that the Secretary of State's office has done an outstanding job with this general election. I want to plus one what Julianne said with that. There's got to be tremendous pressure on, on Secretary Raffensperger and his staff to tilt one way or another, and I imagine to tilt it in, in favor of Republicans. Uh, we saw what happened earlier this year when he decided to send out all those uh, absentee ballot request forms. And so for them to have steely resolve with this, uh, I think is it's absolutely tremendous, and kudos to them. They're taking their time. And they're doing it in a very open and transparent way. And he did say, because you want to be fair, he did say that this should, hopefully this can be resolved without the courts intervening. Because if our state election officials can't get it right, then what message does that send? And you don't want the courts or the high court coming in and making a decision when that's what, that's what the Secretary of State's office is for on a state level, to get this right. But being a Floridian, I can tell you, that, that's not always the case, right? <laughs> 2000, 2018, every, every election in between, this is the first time where we are not in the news, and I'm really glad and excited about that. Boy, when uh, Georgia uh, said they were going to be a battlegrounds state, they came in playing hardball, huh? Um, let's, look, <laughs> let's look at this path, if you will, to 270, and the states that are still, that we're still waiting on results now, depending on whom you ask, because the AP has Mr. Biden with more than 260, CNN with 253. Again, also, and I'll say this as a member of the media, we also have to make sure that we're being fair and that we're accurate as well. So, you know, you, I, I don't call a state until I see somebody officially call a state. So that's how I look at it. But Fred, let's start with you. When you look at these 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 four key states that are out here now. Obviously, you've got you've got Georgia, you've got North Carolina, and, and then Pennsylvania, and then a toss-up between you know Nevada, Alaska, Arizona, depending on who you ask. Uh, what is the path? Let's start with uh, Mr. Biden. What's the path for him in terms of even if he doesn't win Georgia, or does he need to so, win Georgia? 
Yeah, so I think the ba- the low the baseline number that I'm seeing out there is about, that he's at about 253 right now, right? Most outlets seem to to agree with that, and you need 270 to win. Mm-hmm. So if he gets Arizona, which has 11, and Nevada, which has six, that's 270 right there. If he gets without Pennsylvania or anything else coming in, if he gets Pennsylvania and another and uh, and Nevada, he's there. So he had Biden. Uh, Vice President Biden has more paths right now to victory. And this, again, is the irony of President Trump calling for people to stop the vote count, because if he does, then he loses Arizona. If he does, then he loses Michigan. If he does, if they do stop the vote, stop voting, He Biden's at 270. So I'm not really sure when, when President Trump is tweeting that he's thinking about this, but if they do, if we were not to stop the count nationally right now, Biden's there. Mm. And I think uh, ultimately he's going to end up being there anyway. Julianne, your thoughts on the path? It does the Trump camp does President Trump have a, a legitimate path here? Um, well, I you know I think that he that he still has a path. Um, I think that uh, Vice President Biden has a more likely path, um, but I I mean it's still there for President Trump. But he's got to win Georgia, mm-hmm. he's got to win North Carolina, he has to win Arizona, and he has to win Pennsylvania in order to get there. Um, Biden could, if Biden maintains Nevada and maintains Arizona, um, you know, he, he'll be fine. Um, but you know, anything could happen. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it all comes down to what I said on election day. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, well, I said, then all eyes are going to be on Pennsylvania, but today all eyes are on Georgia. Yeah. Um, I certainly never thought that, but um, Pennsylvania is still very important. It's extremely important to President Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, every state is important to him right now, as you mentioned. His 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 his, his paths pathways to victory, um, or poker players say his outs. He can win without Nevada, but he cannot win without both Arizona and Pennsylvania and Georgia and North Carolina. He has to have those four states to get to 270. Well, it's simple third grade math, folks. As we wrap up, Julianne and Fred, and I know I've asked this question before in terms of, you know, this being such an incredible year, but let's talk about the Congress for a moment because it appears that, you know, whatever the outcome is, Congress still has to deal with a lot. What is at the top of that priority, Julianne? I'll start with you. It's still obviously the pandemic, and then what? What else is at the top of the list for you? Well, I think that as we continue to get these results in, and we see what the percentages are going to be in Congress, I think that is going to kind of determine some of what their agenda is going to be. But of course, we know that Democrats are going to hold on to Congress. Um, but it does look like Republicans will have five flips mm-hmm. um, in Congress. As far as the Senate is concerned, you know, like Fred said, it's going to, that's probably going to come down to Georgia. <laughs> but I see Republicans holding on to the Senate. Um, interestingly enough, as was said earlier today, if the president for some reason loses the election today, Mitch McConnell becomes the most powerful Republican in Washington, D.C. And um, Fred said earlier that McConnell was going to block the Biden agenda by talking about the fact that there weren't going to be progressives in the cabinet, et cetera, et cetera. But also, let's look at the letter that was written by a lot of the centrist Democrats in the House of Representatives. They were very clear in their letter about about the whole of progressive, far left uh, wing of the Democratic Party, and and specifically about um, the leadership of Nancy Pelosi. And, mm-hmm. and they said, Americans soundly reject socialism. Americans want to see more working together. They want to see less partisanship, and they want more money in their pockets. So it seems like there are a lot of Democrats in the House of Representatives that are willing to you know, work more with people on the other side of the aisle and have more of a moderate agenda going forward. Fred, I'll end with you because Biden, in a sense, made a pledge to the progressives and said, you know, and he adopted some of their plans and mixed it into his messaging. If he does get elected here, what does he do? 
Uh, he sets up camp in Georgia and tries everything he can to get uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff elected. So he lived through the eight years of the Obama administration where you had uh, a, a Senate that was uh, cooperative the first two years. And then when Mitch McConnell became the leader, he said the number one priority was to make sure that President Obama had, and Joe Biden had zero successes. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. the top thing, to answer your question, you're gonna, they're going to have to deal with health care. They're going to have to deal with staving off the impending recession. Um, they're gonna have to figure out what to do around home ownership and keeping people in their homes. So those are, these are some real big challenges that are out there. The last thing I'll say um, uh, about Georgia, and I think this is really interesting, is we're seeing the emergence of what I'm calling Biden Republicans. And you look at the vote turnout, uh, uh, votes that Joe Biden received versus a Warnock versus an Ossoff and down the line there, you clearly have people who voted Republican on other seats who voted for Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. And that's something Post this election, I'm really looking forward to researching and exploring because this whole idea again of a Biden Republican, we haven't seen uh, something like that in a long time in a long time in American mm -hmm. politics, and we're seeing it here in Georgia. So this is uh, so this is this is very this is very interesting what we're seeing develop developing beyond this, um, and, and it's happening in, in those suburbs that that our Democrats flipped last time. So Sandy Springs, Alpharetta, and these other sort of affluent areas where people like moderates so that's not and joe biden biden has been a moderate mm -hmm. but they also like the packaging so not just the not just the policy but the packaging packaging matters so nice. we'll see atlanta-based political strategist fred hicks and also julianne thompson president of the atlanta-based msn strategies and a longtime political analyst thank you both for taking time as always I know y'all have better things to do, I guess, but we just enjoy having you on the program. And I've gotten emails about you all. Y'all are kind of rock stars. <laughs> That's Julianne. That's now, the only thing I can offer you is a mug. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you for having us. All right. at the club. Kevin Rinker, DJ. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's a familiar sound, the start of a new session down at the state capitol. The last few years, Georgia House Speaker David Ralston has said this. The hour of convening having arrived. All members will please report to the floor of the House and take seats. All members will please take their seats. Mr. Clerk will ring the bell. Ah, yes, the ringing of the bell signaling a new session is underway. Now when state lawmakers return, there will be newcomers representing the House and Senate districts throughout the state. We're going to try and meet as many as we can from both sides of the aisle. And if you are newly elected and I don't know who you are, reach out to me because our listeners want to hear from you. But today we'll start with Reverend Kim Jackson, elected from, from Georgia State District 41, and Nikki Merritt, who was thrilled when I called her. She's going to represent Georgia State District 9. Senators-elect Jackson and Senator-elect Merritt, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're always going to have that feeling about talking to a journalist, Senator-elect Merritt. <laughs> well, I've heard. <laughs> uh, I'm fair. Just ask anybody. Uh, let, let's start with you, uh, uh, Ms. Merritt. Uh, how you feeling? I feel elated. Um, this is all a bit still surreal for me because um, our campaign never really stopped. We had we had primary, a runoff, and now we're down to the end. So um, it's just incredible. It's incredible. Turnout has been incredible. And, um, you know, I just thank all the people that um, have gotten out there to let their voice be heard and got out and vote. And now we're seeing the results of that. Reverend Jackson, how you feeling? I'm excited, and I think uh, like Senator like Merritt, it hasn't quite—it's uh, not quite sinking in yet. I—I I think I'm waiting to hear that bell ring before I really, really believe that this is uh, that this is real. Uh, it just takes a while to to really take it all in. And Senator like Jackson, we should, you know, for full disclosure, you've been a guest on this uh, program before when we've done segments that relates to faith or healing and faith in politics. Let me stay with you for a moment because you never, ever mentioned that you wanted to possibly run for office. Uh, why? What got you into this? 
Yeah, so actually I've wanted to run since I was 13 years old. I've I've known that I've had a dual calling to both serve as a clergy person, as a as a clergy leader and as a public servant. I very much see these two things um, linked hand in hand because I very much feel called to try to make this world better than the world I was born into. And to especially try to make this world better for, for everyone, for people who are often left um, unheard and unseen. So these this is a dream come true in so many ways and very much a part of all of the ways that I feel called to live into the world. Uh, Senator-elect Merritt, what about you? What was that, was it a calling for you? You know what? The calling for me was the election of Donald Trump, and I was highly motivated after that. I was not, I remember, you know, not being able to sleep that night um, because, you know, I have a young black male and, and two young black women in my home, and um, I was just worried about their future and the future of all the kids in my community, and, and the divisive rhetoric um, really bothered me, and um that was my motivation to jump in and dive into a really deep uh, politically to see who was representing us. And um, from there, getting engaged on the ground and talking to folks, I decided that uh, I wanted to jump in and, and run. And I was um, really motivated by the women in this district in Gwinnett County that won in 2018. You know, they were regular black moms and uh, like me with families and children. And then I saw the women in Congress that, that ran, the women of color, and I was like, you know what? I can do this. I'm ready. Let's talk about your respective uh, constituents here. And, and Ms. Merritt, I'll stay with you. You had to get out. I mean, it was a pandemic, too, this time. But as you were out trying to talk to as many people as you could or, or get your feedback, what, what did you hear from your constituents? What were those issues that were important? They were kitchen table issues, mostly. You know, uh, COVID has it, it posed a problem with even all of our campaigns with how we campaign. We were trying to be very sensitive about not going door to door directly and talking to people. So a lot of our campaign had to move to more digital platforms, more trying to get people on mail and on the phone. And um, as far as my constituents, you know, and this is a result of COVID and we see what's happening because it is a trickle down effect. COVID has affected my community, um, not only with uh, uncertainty and fear about how we get out of this, but it also affected, you know, education and parents having to make some tough decisions about whether or not their kids were gonna to go to school. And um, because we had we didn't have the leadership that put that in their hands and, and, and made it harder for them and hard for our teachers. No one ever consulted our teachers or, or thought about it. So I would say, you know, educationally, my teachers and uh, parents and kids going to school, that is a big concern. Healthcare, of course, is number one that we always keep saying that that is a, is a is a hot topic and um you know just us doing simple health precautions uh would we know uh decrease uh some of the spread but that is a concern and of course our, our economy our businesses jobs we have high un unemployment right now and um, our small businesses and some of our families are being really hit by that so those are a few of the issues i know that directly uh, affect uh, my constituents here reverend jackson what about you yeah, so I've had the privilege of campaigning for over the last year and a half. And so I've heard um, so many things about issues around education, even before COVID, about children having access to quality education. And then certainly when COVID came, uh, I think something that often people don't associate with the metro area is issues around connectivity when it comes to the internet. But it has become very clear in my district, while we are a very much an urban district, that our kids are having a trouble getting connected. So when it comes to virtual learning, they're being left behind. Um, that gap is still there. And then also there's just a lot of concern about workers in my district. And so, you know, the General Assembly did this work of coming together this summer and passing some legislation to protect businesses um, from lawsuits from, you know, say everyday citizens who come in, right? So if you go into the place of business and if you catch COVID in that business, you can't sue. Um, but we did nothing really to protect workers. And I have a, a large working class uh, group of folks who live in my district and they are deeply 
concerned mm -hmm. about the fact that PPEs aren't being provided by their by their employers, right? They're deeply concerned about not being able to take off work when they're sick. There's not paid um, medical leave. And so those issues are very near and dear to our hearts, uh, along with certainly healthcare and employment. I mean, all those kind of big issues that really impact uh, what people do with their families when they come home. Um, and lastly, I'll say issues around affordable housing. I, I am so blessed to live in a district where people care about one another. And I can't tell you how many phone calls, emails, and text messages that I've received about people who are homeless in my district. Um, people are concerned about the men and the women, the people who are living in the MARTA you know, the MARTA bus stops, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so issues around affordable housing are huge and it's something that we have to attack and really care for um, if we wanna continue to move Georgia forward. Let's focus a moment on what you want, on what each of you will do to sort of get yourself ready. Uh, I imagine you may have some mentors or people reaching out. What has that been like? Uh, Reverend Jackson, I'll stay with you. Yeah, so I, I've been uh, overwhelmed with a lot of congratulations uh, over the last 24 to 48 hours. Um, but all along the way, I've had a number of legislators who have mentored me and walked me through this process. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And um, I'm also, I am very much about trying to flatten the learning curve as much as I can. And so I've been memorizing the names of all the state senators, uh, <laughs> learning, <laughs> learning where people live and where they come from. You know, I didn't grow up in Georgia, so I didn't learn the 159 counties when I was in, in elementary school, but I'm learning those things and figuring out, you know, what are the issues that impact not just District 41, but impact all of Georgia? Because mm -hmm. as a senator, I get to vote on all of those things, right? I get to introduce legislation about all 159 counties of Georgia. And so I'm really just trying to, to learn those things and learn the rules, right? I, I'm really reading all those books and, and having a lot of conversations with mentors people who are currently sitting. And also, I, I want to shout out Steve Henson, who is the retiring senator from my district. He has been an incredible mentor and friend for me on this journey. Right, Ms. Merritt, what about you? Who's been reaching out and offering to help and get you acclimated and all that? Yeah, so, so many of the women, like I said, in my district that, that ran and won, you know, um, Representative Donna McLeod, you know, she and I speak very often. I mean, I almost feel like it feels like she's a part of my family. So that has always been a source for me to go for information or any questions that I may have. Um, I have a representative uh, Shelly Hutchinson, of course, representative Dr. Jasmine Clark. I can pick up the phone anytime and ask them a question and get their feedback and what it's really, really, really like <laughs> day to day. And, uh, you know, as far as learning, there's going to be, I, I am with uh, Senator Elect Jackson. There is, we're, we're trying to let the wind land a little bit yeah. and there's going to be this <laughs> crossover from campaign to legislating. And there's so much to learn from that. Um, I'm lucky I have on my staff, my campaign manager is Neil Van Martyr. He was a clerk at the Capitol. So he has a little more uh, insight as to where we're going and what's gonna happen. But I have to learn the committees and the rules and um, all the protocol, but I look forward to it. I'm a curious person. So I guess it's gonna be good. And get your parking badge because that's the most important thing too. <laughs> that's what I heard is very, get your tag. Get your tag so you can like run in the HOV lane. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> let's um let's let's talk about our nation for a moment because we keep we've been hearing this for a while it's a nation divided you know we're a divided nation uh, as we wrap up and uh center-elect nikki merritt I'll, I'll begin with you what is your approach to to bringing even if we can't start with the nation start at least with the the state legislature and working across the aisle and, and working with folks who you may not share the same political ideology but you have the same task as lawmakers here in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I am always one, I believe in the community. I believe here in Georgia, even though we are seeing with some of the votes, maybe contrary to this narrative, that there are really good people here and they want what's best and they care about their communities and they don't like the divisiveness and the division. And um, I myself will look forward to working across the aisles on issues that are impacting um, my community specifically. And I and I would hope that um, we can come to some a lot of bipartisan agreements. 
um, and break some barriers of a, like, we can't talk to each other. So um, that's kind of my thoughts. I like community. I like us to think, I like to think of us as one tribe and one people because we all are just Americans at the end of the day. And I'm hoping that um, um, Joe Biden does get elected and we get past this election and we can get to some healing and realize that we really are all friends and, and more probably um, uh, brings us together than divides us. All right. Senator-elect Kim Jackson. Yeah, so I've I've thought a lot about where I felt called to serve in public service. And I chose the Georgia General Assembly in part because of the bipartisan nature of the General Assembly. I think most people aren't aware that almost 90% of bills that get passed uh, in Georgia are passed um, almost unanimously. There's an incredible amount of bipartisan work that takes place. I've had the privilege of, of working on bills as, a, as an advocate and as a faith leader in Georgia and, and seeing how it works, right? We were able to pass legislation to protect um, women, to protect children, to make sure that rape kits got counted. Um, we passed legislation to expand Medicaid for women who give birth in this state um, who are on Medicaid. And so those things happen because we work across the aisle. And I find I find that inspiring and I hope that's inspiring for the nation. Um, so, you know, as we count all of these votes and we see that Georgia is very, very purple and may in fact be blue, um, what we know though for sure that when it comes to the General Assembly, um, we do work together and we're able to, to cross over some real political differences. And so that's the, the hope that I come with into the General Assembly and the work that I plan to do. I am ready to reach across the aisle and really do what's best for all Georgians. And I know we're going to try to meet as many of you newcomers as we can from both sides of the aisle. And hey, feel free to reach out to me, Rose, at WABE.org. Say, hey, Rose, I'm a newcomer. Get me on the show. I got you. Reverend Kim Jackson, elected from Georgia State District 41. Nikki Merritt, who represent Georgia State District 9, Senators-elect Jackson and Merritt. Thank you so much for taking the time, being our, you, you're all kind of the audition for this new little conversation series. So you did well, I think. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rose. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rose. It's a pleasure being on. And that's it for today's edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer today is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. If you miss any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And, of course, as a podcast, wherever you go, Closer Look will be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. As Georgia continues to count, this is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.